The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Has this archaic understanding of marriage. Just, just do me a favor. This is why I need a long introduction today. If you're here and you're like, do they preach the Bible? Yes, we preach the Bible. It's just going to be a little bit this morning before I get there, okay? But I think I need to do it because I, I need to peel back some layers for us this morning. And this introduction is good for the entire series. So you need to hear this this morning. But we're looking for something different than we looked for 200 years ago. It's vastly different. Empirically, we know that since the 1960s, marriage has been on a sharp decline. In the 1960s, uh, 72% of American adults were married. Today, 55% of American adults are married. In the 1960s, um, only 5% of young adults in the 1960s would never get married. Today, that number is 25% of young adults who will never get married. Now, if you're single this morning, you don't need to get fidgety because I'm not trying to assert to you that if you're single, you're weird because the New Testament affirms, the New Testament legitimizes singleness as a legit way to live. So I'm not, this series is not about knocking singleness this morning. But, but innately, we understand that marriage is on the decline. So I hope that doesn't surprise you. You shouldn't be surprised by that. But what I hope surprises you this morning is why marriage is different than it was 50 years ago, 200 years ago. And when we begin to understand that, I think the Bible will make drastically more sense. And so this idea, now Chris Rock, the great theologian, described sort of this <laughs> cultural view of marriage like this. He said one time, um, do you want to be single and lonely or do you want to be married and bored, right? <laughs> so, so like, like he, he, he gives such a great definition of how we see this idea of marriage. There's a great pessimism in our culture, in our society about how we think about the institution of marriage. There's been a significant shift in this, this unrealistic. Am I in the light here? Can you see me now? There's been this significant shift in this unrealistic idealism about the understanding of marriage. Um, one legal scholar said, the ideal of marriage is a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to the new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of individual parties. So we, we owe this new way of thinking to a period of time known as the Enlightenment, the age of reason. And the Enlightenment gave us some brilliant ideas, by the way. Um, the idea of liberty, separation of church and state, ideas that came out of the Enlightenment, the age of reason, helped, uh, helped uh, Thomas Jefferson frame the Declaration of Independence. It helped us frame the Constitution. There were some brilliant ideas during the Enlightenment. But the idea of marriage began to shift because in the Enlightenment, we now began to think of the meaning of life as coming from every individual's freedom to choose the life that most satisfies them and the most fulfills them. So previously, we had this, this meaning of life that's found in this idea of self-denial. And so self-denial was the way that we found meaning. And now the enlightenment ushers in this new way of thinking that, that you choose how you personally want to be fulfilled, how you personally want to be satisfied, and nothing should stop you from having the most fulfilling life possible. And so one pastor said about the enlightenment, in short, the enlightenment privatized marriage taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, 
not any broader good, such as reflecting God's nature, uh, producing character, or raising children, slowly but surely, this newer understanding of the meaning of marriage has displaced the older ones in Western culture. Now, that's a pastor, and you're like, surely the pastor is going to say that. But a New York Times columnist in 2011 wrote about this idea of the me marriage, and she said, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive, right? After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, she says, now this is not a pastor, this is a secular author writing an article in the New York Times. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who, makes their, who make their lives more interesting, who help them attain valued goals. A brilliant way to explain how we currently view relationships. So now, marriages used to be about us. The dominant cultural view is that marriages are about me. Um, ladies, have you ever met a man um, who, who uh, was afraid of commitment? Anybody ever met one of those guys? You dated one? And so, so you, you understand, like, like this is modern view of men who are afraid of marriage. There was a study um, several years ago called the National Marriage Project, and they surveyed men, and they asked them about this a fear of commitment. And, and, so, and so men said, I'm afraid of commitment. And then they asked him, why are you afraid of commitment? And so you would naturally think, I'm afraid of commitment because I may not find the person who most sexually satisfies me or who I'm most physically attracted to. And that was one of the reasons why. But they said, I'm afraid of commitment until I can find my soulmate, uh, the person who I'm most compatible with. And so then the, the, the research went on to say, well, what do you mean by a soulmate? What do you mean by a person who you're compatible with? And the number one answer from men in the National Marriage Project said, what I mean by compatibility is someone who will not infringe on my freedom and who will not change me. And so um, they, several direct quotes from some of the men interviewed said, when, what I mean by compatibility is I want to find a woman who can fit into my life. Um, if you're compatible, you don't have to change. And, and many of them were, were, were just adamant that, that, that a woman should not infringe on their freedom at all. And so this was what the report concluded. I mean, this was a national report, um, thousands of men. This is what it said. Cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual menstruations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. So what we're left with is these desires for um, a spouse who doesn't demand a lot from us. <laughs> um, we're also looking for a spouse who's got it all together, who doesn't bring a lot of problems into the relationship because problems inhibit your freedom and your time and your emotions. So we're searching now for the ideal person. Does this make sense to you? Does this, does this resonate with you? We're searching for the person who's happy, who's content with life, who doesn't have emotional neediness, who, who doesn't have um, character flaws that they bring into the relationship. Um, you're also looking for someone who can bring this cinematic sexual fulfillment, right? In essence, we're looking for like an accomplished author, an astronaut, and like somebody who's all also done some fashion modeling, right? Like we're looking for the ideal person. 
Do you see the problem? <laughs> Do you see the problem that we have? There's almost no one left to marry. <laughs> this new ideal of marriage has this standard, like the bar is so high that nobody can meet it. Have you ever heard two girls talk like this? Hey, girl, who are you dating? Who are you seeing? Oh, girl, I'm just dating Jesus, right? <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can live up to our standards. We've never had a time in human history when so many people are so idealistic in what we're looking for in a spouse. Now, here's the irony. Here's the irony. This is a new way of thinking, and ironically, the new idealism about what we're looking for in a spouse has ushered in this new pessimism about marriage and relationships. So where does that leave us? It leaves us with this trap, this terrifying prospect that I'm going to have a really bad marriage, and we're trapped between this other idea that I've got these unrealistic idealistic expectations that nobody can meet. And so this idealism leads into an extraordinary pessimism in our culture. And so the result is we put off marriage or we, we date a lot of people, we bypass prospective partners, or we stay in a marriage that we just consider just incredibly, awfully unsatisfying to me. I've got a friend, and um, he's been dating a girl for four years. She's incredible. She's amazing. And, um, and so, it, like, every conversation we have, um, it's like, hey, man, four years, what are you thinking? Um, no, man, I just don't know. Um, man, so, so what's the issue? Well, she got a crazy family, man. Um, well, and she's, like, like and she's got expensive taste. This is a true story. Legit, one time we were in this park, and she wanted this $10 bottle of wine. And I'm like, girl, if you want that $10 bottle of wine, you're going to have to spend your own money. <laughs> and, and we got these theological differences on this one doctrine. And I'm like, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh. I'm like dude, you knew this three and a half years ago. What are you waiting on? This is what happens when you're jacked up. You get in my messages, right? I'm like, why is it so hard to find a partner? I love him with all my heart. He was in my wedding, and I'm confident he's going he's gonna to marry a girl, the same girl, and I'm going to be in his wedding, and it won't be long, and, and I'm confident of it. Um, it will be an arranged marriage if he cannot commit, I promise you. And I was on the phone with him this week, and I'm legit like, dude, can I call her? Can I just talk to her and be like, look, just anyway, so... So, so this is what happens. Why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to find a partner? It's hard because we, we want a marriage that's based off self-fulfillment, not self-denial, and it requires this partner who's low to no maintenance, no flaws, makes no demands on me. And that's what we mean when we say, I'm just waiting to marry the right person. <laughs> I'm just waiting to marry my soulmate. I'm just waiting to find the person who's compatible. The problem is we want far too much out of marriage. We want far too much out of marriage. Can I say this to you today? You never marry the right person. Like if you're married here today, I, 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 like I'm sure there's some singles here and you're like, I don't want to hear that. No, 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 it's true. 
I, 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 there is nothing I would not do for my wife. Some of you who are married here would say the same thing. You would also say, you never marry the right person. You never marry the right person. So, so why have we come to this? We're, we're so pessimistic about marriage. We're so pessimistic about relationships because we've become too idealistic about the type of person we want. Why? Why have we come to this? Here's why. Because we have a flawed understanding, a flawed base, a flawed foundation for the purpose of marriage itself. In premarital counseling, um, I always ask two questions. I ask a lot of questions, but I always ask two questions. Number one, I always ask, what do you want to get out of marriage? And then I secondly ask, what is the purpose of marriage? Oftentimes, I, 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 most of the time, quite honestly, I, I get answers that sound like this modern form of defini uh, modern definition of, of dating and relationships. It sounds like the self-fulfillment prophecy that our culture is speaking about. And rarely does it sound like a biblical form of marriage. So how do we reorient ourselves? How do we uh, navigate ourselves back to this biblical idea of marriage? Here's how. We, we first of all have to open the scriptures. And we have to open the scriptures because uh, I believe, and this church believes, that the scriptures can give a clear definition on the meaning of life and the meaning in, uh, of marriage itself personally. And so this morning, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, that was the introduction, okay? Um, <laughs> I promise we're going to get out of here, okay? Um, the scriptures explain to us. It's not going to be long, I promise you. Hold on to your seatbelt. Um, the scriptures explain to us why we have this endless pursuit of, of compatibility, why, why it seems like it's impossible. And there's two reasons. The reason why marriage is so hard is because there are no two people are compatible. A friend of mine got his master's degree at Duke University under a, an ethics professor named Stanley Hirewas. And Stanley Hirewas wrote this article, very well-respected man. He wrote an article about this idea of people not being compatible. And I want you to listen to what it says. I don't think we have this on the screens. Um, it says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. <laughs> or even if we first marry the right person, we just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing that it is means that we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So there are two primary reasons why you never marry the right person. And the first is this, because marriage profoundly changes us. Think about this for a minute. I don't know. Um, if, you've, if you've lived in a setting with roommates before, you graduated high school, and then you got in this, you know, you room with your best friend at college. I don't know what your experience was. Maybe it was amazing, but it was it was hellacious in my circumstance. Like living with somebody 24-7 like changes you. 
And when you live um, in close proximity, in such close proximity, not, not just like they're on the other side of the room or they've got their own bedroom. Now you're living in the same bed. Compatibility begins to take on this different idea. And so the biblical perspective of marriage has this understanding that I know you're going to change. Regardless, I'm committed to the change that happens in your life. Now, now, here's the thing. Um, I'm guilty of this. I, I, I am not a man who has passed the test. I'm like, hey, um, here are the answers. If you just do this, um, this is how you do it. I am guilty of this. When I was dating Laura, we dated for a little over a year. I kid you not. She's not here today. You can ask her when you see her again. She's seeing family on the East Coast. Listen, I had a list of 50-ish questions. We sat down one night. We sat down one night before I ever started dating Laura. We sat down one night, and I asked her, all 50-ish questions, questions like, um, do you balance your checkbook every month, right? Like, I want to know if she's going to spend more than I make, right? Like, I ask her, um, do you keep a clean car, right? Why? I want to know if Sharknado is going to look like it came through our house, right? I ask her, now you may not understand this, are, you, are there scratches on your CDs? Seriously, no kidding. I know some of you don't understand what I'm talking about. But here's what I want to know. Is she going to be careless with the things that we own? I ask her, how often do you get your hair cut, right? Why? Because you don't like a woman looking good? No, not at all. I just don't like paying for it. That's the problem. <laughs> Every three weeks, Rico cuts my hair, 30 bucks. Every time I leave, I'm like, ah, I can't believe I just paid 30 bucks for it, right? Like I ask her all these questions. How many times a week do you talk to your parents, right? Like I want to know what the in-law situation is going to be like. Like, 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 so 50 questions. I'm like, great. If I get these 50 questions answered, I didn't even tell you about the 12 things that had bullet point after bullet point after bullet point of the things that were required down to the nth. Like, like I wanted a wife who had great legs. I wrote it, 12 things. Like, like I want a wife who, blah, blah, blah. I, so I wrote all of these things. I interviewed her, right? Like I interviewed, and then can I tell you, uh, 12 years later, I would love to tell you, man, boom, every single one of them, checklist, done. No, <laughs> no, because why marriage changes us. Uh, my wife grew up with a guy here, uh, wherever he is. He's a great friend of our family, just moved from Austin to LA. He knows my wife very, very well. He can report back to her exactly what I said because I wouldn't show her my notes today. Um, and <laughs> you can report, she can listen to podcasts, it's all there, um, except for that. Oh, really? And so. Um, <clears throat> Here's the thing, and she would say the same thing about the questions she asked me. Did he meet all those questions? No, no, I didn't meet. No, I'm, why? Because marriage profoundly changes us. Here's the thing, when you live in close proximity, things are bound to change. That person who you thought was gonna be the best parent on planet Earth turns out to be exactly the opposite. That person who you thought was Baptist is Pentecostal. That person... <laughs> Listen, that, that person who you thought was going to be a writer turned out to be a postman. Like, like that person you thought, listen to me, this is per, that person you thought was going to be the perfect picture of health. They spent most of their marriage with health challenges. Life changes. Married marriage changes us. And that's why we will never marry the right perfect soulmate because things inevitably will change. 
that's a flawed understanding of marriage. I'm just going to find the right person. But the modern definition has an answer to that. It's called starter marriages and first marriages. When it doesn't work out, I move on to the next thing. And the Bible has something totally different to say about that as well. The first reason is why we never marry the right person because marriage profoundly changes us. The second reason is this. Because every person who gets married is spiritually broken by sin. (laughs) Every person who gets married is spiritually broken by sin. The primary enemy in marriage is this sinful self-centeredness that we have, right? Because in dating, here's what you get. In dating, you get a halo and you get wings, right? In marriage, you get a tail and a pitchfork, right? Like in dating, you get this photoshopped version. In marriage, you get the Polaroid. Why? Because sin profoundly has this effect on marriage. And as, 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 a, as, a, as pastors in ministry, I believe we have the ability to have one of the most realistic um, pictures of how the earth and, and how humanity operates. We see the highs, we see the lows. So in those days when you sit in an office and, and a wife comes in, a husband comes in, and treason has happened in the marriage. So those days when a student gives you a call and he's weeping uncontrollably because he can't even communicate to you how broken he is to find out that his dad is having a sexual relationship by email with a woman states away. And here's the thing, sin is inevitable. Like if we think, oh man, Oh, when when I get a hold of her, (laughs) when I get my hands around him, he's going to shape up or ship out. Sin's inevitable. And and, and it's going going to affect your marriage. It's not, not just adultery. Not just adultery. It's just it's just everyday life where we make sinful choices. So in essence, what we did with our search for a soulmate, in essence, what we did, the shift that happened in the enlightenment was that we, we, in the enlightenment, we became skeptical about God in the first place. And then we substituted and elevated our partner to this place where God should have been. And then the wheels come off. Because we elevated our partner to the place where only God belongs. He can provide the meaning of life. He can provide my hope for the future. He can provide my ultimate fulfillment and sustainability. Now God's to the side. My partner's on top here on this elevated platform. And then your partner is this wicked, sinful person that you never saw coming. And then this deep pessimism sets in. This deep unsatisfaction sets in. We've made our partner this sort of demigod who will heal everything about us. And then the honeymoon is over. True story, and I won't tell you all of it today. I almost lost my marriage in the first six months I was married. I was so committed to my job. I was so committed to being the best pastor I could be. Leave my wife at home. I'd, I'd be out most nights of the week with people doing ministry. I almost lost my marriage for six months. 
happens is when the honeymoon's over, this extraordinary disillusionment sets in and we realize that human beings should never be on the pedestal where God belongs. So what do we do about this problem of marriage? Yeah, this is more belong. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the problem is not marriage itself. God designed it. He designed marriage for us, designed us for marriage. So the problem is not marriage. So in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, Paul looks back to the summary on marriage given in the last two verses of chapter 2 of Genesis. And he summarizes what God says about marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says this, which is where we started today. And then Paul says this, and this in verse 32 is a profound mystery. (laughs) You're like, yes, it is. (laughs) I agree. And what is the mystery that Paul is talking about here? This is what he says. He adds his own definition on what this mystery is. And he says in the second half of verse 32, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's talking about marriage here. Then he, then he bounces out of this, this human idea and bounces to this supernatural idea of Christ and the church. What he's really doing is he's referencing back to verse 25. Verse 25 says this, husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So in our culture, we formulated all these mysteries and this confusion and this disenchantment about marriage. Paul says the biblical mystery of marriage is that husbands should do for their wives just the same thing that Christ did for us to bring us into relationship with him. What did he do? What did he do? Paul said he gave himself up. I know you understand this, especially if you've been in church for a while, but listen to me, listen to me. The son of God who could alone claim equality with God, the son of God who had the authority and the power of being God himself gave himself up in the garden. Remember in the garden, the night before he went to the cross, He's falsely arrested. He's falsely arrested. The Son of God, Jesus himself, gave himself up. He's bounced around to different leaders and authorities. He's finally stood on a platform with people chanting his name, saying, crucify him, crucify him. The Son of God, who had all authority and all power to rectify the situation, willingly gave himself up. being brutally beaten on the cross. Son of God, who had the power to stand up, willingly gave himself up. He gave up his power. He gave up his glory. Listen to me. To become a servant to look after our needs and our interest. Mind-blowing. Scripture tells us that it was that sacrifice on the cross. Listen, this is, this is, this is, 
It was that sacrifice that he made on the cross that what happened? That brought us into union with him and he with us. (laughs) And Paul says, that is the key to marriage. That's the key. So then we think, yeah, but biblical marriage, it's oppressive. It's outdated. Puts this unnecessary weight on one or the other. And just remember this morning that Jesus never used his power once to oppress us. The exact opposite. He lowered himself. First Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he will exalt you. Jesus was the living embodiment of self-sacrifice for the interest of someone else. <laughs> so what's interesting is that if, if God created this idea of marriage to give us a picture of Christ and the church, right? It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the closest illustration humanity has to what it means to be in relationship with Jesus himself. And so if God gave us this illustration of Christ sacrificing himself, then here's the thing, marriage only works to the degree that it reflects the same self-giving sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. So where do I begin if I'm already married? Where do I begin if I'm looking for a spouse? (laughs) You begin by doing for your spouse what Jesus did for you. And everything else follows this pattern. Like, we, we wanna be a church that tells the story beneath the story. We're not just training shoulder monkeys who do tricks for tips here. We're not just a tips and tricks church that gives you seven ways to do this. And I'm not saying those are bad, but I'm saying when you understand the story beneath the story, things really begin to make sense. And the story beneath the story is that we can trace nearly all of our issues back to this idea that if we just would would imitate, do for our spouse what Jesus did for us and everything else follows a glorious, hopeful pattern. And the irony is, is that when we do so, um, we don't lose ourselves, right? Like, like this is great. I'm gonna lose myself if I take on this biblical idea of marriage. Like in our culture, being a man is is being a man. You get your way, you do what you wanna do. You step on toes, you jump over, you, you just get your way. If I follow this and I'll be seen as a weak man. No, you'll be seen as a godly man. I don't know what was said, but hopefully it was funny. (laughs) But it requires sacrifice, and it requires us to rely on the gospel every single day. That's why marriage is so painful and so wonderful, because it reflects the gospel, the pain of Jesus' sacrifice, the glory of the union with him. Marriage reflects the gospel. And here's... Here's why marriage is anything but sentimentality. Marriage is anything but riding off into the sunset on the back of a snapper lawnmower. Here's why. 
Because in marriage, we see our spouse's deepest flaws and their greatest sin, and you will see it every day. Yet in light of that, we can speak truth to our spouse, not in a harsh way. Truth without love is harshness. Love without truth is sentimentality. The gospel has a medium ground. It says, I can speak to you in truth. And the reason why I can speak to you in truth and you not lose any of yourself is because I repeat this process over and over and over and over again so that you know tomorrow, next week, next year, 50 years from now, I am fully and wholly committed to you. My love and acceptance of you has not changed. We can speak truth to each other in our sinful moments because I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. And that's where marriage begins. That can lead us to the best possible marriage. I wanna pray for us. We're gonna just sing one song, we'll be done. Um, um, let me say this, we, we deeply care about marriage in our church. I hadn't planned on doing this, but in, um, in August, in, in fact, two weeks from now, we're gonna introduce an opportunity for five, possibly six married couples to engage in this um, sort of, um, I wanna be careful how I explain it, but in a group dynamic, um, to engage in a helpful, healthy process. We'll tell you more about that in the coming weeks. You're like, I'm single, where do I fit in? At some point, we're gonna offer the same thing, hopefully for you as well. We're, we're desperately concerned about marriages and we wanna be helpful. And so I hope today will give us the foundation to build on the rest of this series. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you that you're trustworthy. You can speak truth to us. The Spirit of God can, can be honest painfully, Lord. But Lord, it can be painful to us and divide our hearts because we know that you're not going anywhere. Today we know, tomorrow we know, next week, next year, 20 years from now, we are fully loved and approved by you and accepted by you, God. And because of your love for us, truth can be spoken. So God, today, I, I, don't, I don't know the scenario, the situations in this room, but I'm confident there are marriages that are hurting and struggling. I'm confident there are uh, boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, Lord. There are, are relationships that are happening right now, God, that are questioning the validity of marriage. Can it be good? Jesus, I pray that the scriptures will speak deeply to us over the course of this series for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.